the test is designed to test the, the third year residents. And so it's expected, obviously, that from first to second to third year, your scores improve. And it's designed, just so you know, to test the level of an EM3 resident who's getting ready to go out and practice on their own. So, and there is a lot of studies that show that your correlation on the in-service exam will be indicative of whether or not you can pass the board exam. And obviously that's the whole point of residency, right, is we'd like you all to become board certified um, and therefore hireable. So these are some of the things that I've been using to get um, these lectures together. This book I think is probably the best one. I'm getting a lot of your questions from there, so don't worry about getting it because you're going to be doing most of these questions. You guys have a copy of that? Already, we gave that to you when you first started. Um, and I am not, I'm strategically not using the peer series um, because I'm expecting that you guys are doing that on your own. Um, there is this book, it's probably the newest book, um, probably one of the best reviewed online um, to get you ready for the board. So if you were going to get anyone on your own, this might be the one that I would look at. This one, sorry for the fuzzy picture, I actually have this one right here, and anyone's welcome to borrow it. It's like an outline form. Um, it's pretty bare bones, but I think still useful. And it comes with a CD that's got like a thousand questions on it. And uh, I have that CD as well. So I'm happy to, to share that one. Um, this is another book that I have. Um, it's just got questions split up into categories. So like there's a renal and a GU or a gynecology chapter. I think these questions tend to be a little bit more basic. You guys can pass this around if you want. Um, I don't use as many of the questions out of there just because I think they're a little bit elementary. It's a good review, but I don't think it's as good as the other question book. And then people always ask me, what did I use to review? And I have to be totally honest, I didn't have a specific book that I used for the in-service exam. I just did questions. I think that's the most useful way to study. But when it came down uh, to studying for boards, I used, this is the Rivers book. I'm sure most of you have probably heard of Carol Rivers' book. It's a big like two volume blue book and I think every one of my residency had it and it's an outline form it's pretty detailed it's long took me forever to get through it but I thought it was worthwhile and I read it a couple times <laughs> I use I the one, which is only okay one volume. there you go excellent so it's just kind of up to you I just wanted to get you guys in the to start thinking about it um, and this is the how the exam is broken down. So you can definitely tell there's some subject areas that you should be studying more than others. Um, so they hit cardiovascular big. They hit um, the abdominal stuff pretty big. And obviously thoracic, respiratory, and then trauma. Where's that at? Trauma is the other big one. Um, what what I didn't list here is pediatrics because they're the way that they divide this. They put the peds questions in with the adult questions into these categories. So, um, But don't forget about the little people. So that's your test. Hopefully we're all going to do wonderful on it. Yeah? Uh, the other thing is the department purchased the uh, National Emergency Medicine Board Review of the series of discs, um, video and audio, and um, Sharice recommended it amongst others. It's actually a very, very good review that you could uh, be working out or something like that. So we're in the process of making that available to all of you. Um, I won't really divulge the details, but uh, we are going to make that available to you guys. Okay. So those are just on a little overview of some of the resources you guys have available to you to help you get ready for this. Um, so let's do some questions. Uh, Kenny Kim, do you want to take the first one? Yes. <coughs> 
53-year-old male with hypertension presents with a two-month history of back pain and difficulty urinating. His prostate is normal in exam, but you appreciate mildly decreased strength in his lower extremity bilaterally while waiting for an MRI to investigate the cause of his suspected epidural spinal cord compression. You order a post-void residual to check in the interim, which follows the upper limit for the normal post-void residual in this patient. 150. Good guess. Anybody else got a guess? Anybody else want to take a stab at this? 50. Is that the overwhelming majority? Yeah? Okay. 50 it is. All right. So this whole question, it's like going into epidural cord compression and everything else. All they're asking you is what is the normal, what is the upper limit of normal for a post-void residual adult patient? That's it. That's all this question is asking. And you have to know the number is 50. Um, there's a lot of different numbers I saw in the literature. For some reason, in India, they must be able to empty their bladder better than we can because it's 20 to 30 in India. But for the rest of us, <laughs> here it is 50. Um, between 50 and 200 is a bit of a gray area, but definitely over 200 is very, very abnormal. And that's when you start seeing the effect on um, renal function. So anyhow, keep it in mind, 50. So what are some of the reasons that we can have... Um, Urinary retention, we can have an infection, neurogenic bladder, prostate, obstructive causes. Very good. Okay. Medications. Medications. Lots and lots of medications. Can I add a quick, quick mm -hmm. anecdote? A mm -hmm. uh, 23-year-old girl with these weird paresthesias on her, on her chest and her abdomen and her legs could walk around, said she had a little trouble urinating. We did a post-void residual. It was 200 cc's. I didn't know that number. It was a bizarre situation. We sent her home. We didn't know what it was. Three days later, she comes back with transverse myelitis. She loses perineal sensation, has light weakness, and the 200 was abnormal. So, and I actually, thank you for, matter. yeah, thank you for sharing that story. It's actually perfect. I forgot to mention, I even have written down here in my little notes, that urinary retention or urinary incontinence could be the only sign or symptom patients present with for spinal cord compression. So, Keep that in mind, okay? All these little old people who come in with their urinary retention, just remember it could be something neurologic. Okay. Question two. Um, Elisa, do you want to do question two for me? Sure. Physical examination of a patient with Reiter's syndrome may be expected to reveal waxy plaques on the palms and soles, sausage-like swelling of the fingers, painful shallow ulcers in the mouth, pruritus, um, or all of the above. Feel free to phone a friend on this question. I had to. I know they can get uveitis. It's like an autoimmune thing. Um, I'm going to go with all the above. Excellent choice. <laughs> when you don't know the answer, choose the one that's not like the others. And it is indeed all of the above. Let's talk a little bit about um, Reiter's syndrome. So acute asymmetric oligoarthritis associated with chlamydia or infectious diarrhea, like the Shigellas of the world can cause it, usually is two to six weeks after the inciting infection. There is an association with HLA B27 or HIV. The treatment for Reiter's syndrome is really just NSAIDs. The antibiotics, those come before, right? That's for the cervicitis or uveitis that they had. Um, 
This is the one, the little mnemonic that we learned in school, can't see, can't pee, can't climb a tree, okay? So it's a triad of conjunctivitis, urethritis, and arthritis. The pains usually lower extremities, knees, ankles, feet. Um, patients present with dysuria, urgency, urethral discharge, and then these are some of the eye complaints that they can have. So just a little tidbit on Rider's syndrome because I certainly had to refresh my memory, okay? And the waxy plaques on the um, elbows, is that psoriasis? Um, no, 10% develop keratoderma blenorrhagica, and that would be the waxy plaques. <laughs> Write that down. Okay, question three. Dr. Mortazavi, would you like to try this one? Yeah, a 38 year old pregnant woman presents to the with abdominal pain radiating to the back and vaginal bleeding. She's 25 weeks by date and has had an uncomplicated pregnancy with routine prenatal care. Yours is firm and tender on exam. Bright red blood oozing from the cervical os. Most likely diagnosis is appendicitis, placentia previa, vasoprevia, fibroid degeneration. Oh, it looks like I forgot some of your choices, but C, D, and E, I hope you yes. got that part, yeah. So it looks like she is in her uh, second trimester. So I guess she's past, I guess she's past 24 weeks, so it's most likely she has a, a dominant She most likely has a central eruption, which is Good. Good. So E. Yes. E is the right choice. So what they want you to take away from this question is it's a 38-year-old who's 25 weeks by date, so she's pretty far along in her pregnancy, right? Um, and she is coming in with pain, number one, and vaginal bleeding. So pain and vaginal bleeding, it's a placental abruption. Um, Dina, how good is an ultrasound at diagnosing placental abruption? Um, good or bad? It's like gladiator, right? Thumbs up, thumbs down? It's pretty good if there's no bleeding behind the placenta. It's actually not very good. Yeah, <laughs> placental abruption, ultrasound, not very helpful helpful. It's a clinical diagnosis and you should have a high index of suspicion for it in third trimester bleeding that's painful. Okay? Sometimes the placenta can tear away um, from the wall and the <coughs> bleeding can be main contained within the uterus so you, it, you actually don't have any vaginal bleeding with it. So these are some of the reasons that make it difficult to diagnose. Um, I hope to God nobody wanted to pick appendicitis on this one. I think the the real choices are between B and E, and the difference is it's painful, okay? All right. So let's chat a little bit about this. So abruption is when the placenta tears from the wall. Um, placenta previa is where the placenta is low-lying and it's over the os, so you can get bleeding. <clears throat> Risk factors are actually fairly similar. Uh, advanced maternal age, trauma, hypertension, multiparity, smoking, cocaine use for abruption. Quite similar with placenta previa. We'll add previous C-section to that one. This is painful vaginal bleeding. Uh, you have uterine tenderness. It can lead to DIC and fetal distress. Placenta previa is usually painless vaginal bleeding. Ultrasound, not as good at picking these up. So if you have a high index of suspicion and your ultrasound is sort of, you know, non-diagnostic or not helpful, you know, don't dismiss it. Um, uh, whereas ultrasound for placenta previa, very, very good. Usually these are diagnosed on ultrasound and the OBs know that they have placenta previa moving forward in the pregnancy, so they plan ahead for that. Um, things to remember for an abruption, call an OB. 
for placenta previa, <laughs> don't do a speculum exam. So when you know when you guys present your patients to me and I tell you, oh, did you do the pelvic exam? You can be like, no, Dr. Chanwani, you told me never to do it with placenta previa, and this patient told me she has placenta previa. Okay, and ideally we won't be seeing these 25 weekers downstairs, anyways, because they're going up to OB triage. Be careful sometimes because you look at these lists of things. You know the percentage of people that get a birth shield that actually don't have any vaginal No, I don't know the actual percentage, but I know it's common enough that you need to be aware of it. Yeah. That they may not have, have any vaginal bleeding, correct. correct. Mm -hmm. So don't walk away with the masters thinking we're all going to vaginal bleeding because not vaginal No, very true. With abruption, they may not actually have any vaginal bleeding. So. Lots of pain, third trimester, keep it in mind even if there's no vaginal bleeding. Sorry, just taking a minute to make sure it covered everything. Okay, so here's just a little picture. Here's your abruption. This is where the placenta tears away from the wall and you can see how you can get bleeding into the uterus and you might not actually get any bleeding um, in the vaginal vault. Uh, placenta previa is where the placenta is low-lying and it covers the internal cervical os. Now, there's different types of placenta previa. They can be, it can be uh, a partial, a marginal. Um, I think these differentiations are less important to us. I think it's more important to our OB colleagues. Um, we just need to know, is there, is there not a previa because it's going to change how we manage our patient and what uh, physical exam we do on them. The other thing is some patients can start with like a partial placenta previa and then as the pregnancy grows, it actually um, becomes less of a problem because the placenta sort of moves up a little bit along the side and doesn't actually cover the ass. So, The other one to keep in mind is the vasa previa and this is different because the placenta is in a normal place but the vessels cross in front of the presenting part, whether it be the head, the foot, whatever part's coming out first. Um, and this can cause a problem during the antepartum period, or patients can get bleeding when they get spontaneous rupture of membranes. Um, and so, again, this requires a C-section because this is not a good way for this baby to come out. Okay. Question four. Ahmed, do you want to try this one? Yeah. <clears throat> uh, which of the following is true regarding spontaneous abortion? A, patients diagnosed with dry abortion should not receive anti-D immunoglobulin because the antibody may provoke an immune response to the life fetus. B, when the fetal heartbeat is seen on ultrasound, patients diagnosed with threatened abortion and experience spontaneous miscarriage 50% of the time. C, patients diagnosed with threatened abortion should be placed on bed rest restrictions until the bleeding resolves. D, all patients who present to the ED with fetal or placental tissue and resolution of vaginal bleeding can be diagnosed with complete abortion and discharge. E, up to 80% of women with first trimester spontaneous abortion complete the abortion within, without intervention. Uh, I'm going to go with answer B. Okay. It's, I think it's a decent guess out of all the options that you have here. Does anyone else want to make another guess? E. E, yeah. E is, the, e is the right answer here. Although I think... Uh, I like this question. I know it's really wordy and I apologize, but I like it because it brings up a couple good points. Um, a is wrong because... Patients diagnosed with a threatened AB, if they're RH negative, they should all be getting Rogam, right? Um, there's not a risk of provoking an immune response in a live fetus. 
B is wrong because the percentage is too high. So when a fetal heartbeat is seen on an ultrasound in patients diagnosed with a threatened AB, only 15% of those will progress. And I mean, we see these all the time, right? Patients who come in with a threatened AB and there's a live IUP still with um, a normal fetal heart tones. So only 15% of those are going to go on and progress to um, a spontaneous AB. Yes, 85% go on to carry the uh, pregnancy to full term. Um, and I always get a little hesitant with numbers like this just because sometimes it's like the patient comes in and there's no bleeding, but she reports bleeding. Or, you know, the stories are a little funny, so I think you have to keep that in mind. But if there's, you know, if you're diagnosing threatened AB and there's a fetal heart tone, there's a good chance that that patient could go on to carry that child to term. Um, patients diagnosed with a threatened AB... Um, should be placed on bed rest restrictions. This is not the case. And so it's important when we give discharge instructions to our patients that we give them the correct discharge instructions. Back in the day, they used to tell women to go home and lay in bed and not do anything for weeks at a time, and that's just not the case. They can go about doing their regular activities, but they shouldn't use tampons, douching, or have intercourse. Those are the instructions that you should give them. Um, all patients who present to the ED with fetal or placental tissue and resolution of vaginal bleeding can be diagnosed with a complete abortion and discharge. I think it's fair to say in the ED we might suspect that, but until the lab confirms that what was passed was actually products of conception, you can't 100% say they had a completed AB. So I think we rarely make that diagnosis in the emergency department because we just don't get that information back in a timely enough manner. We can certainly suspect it, but if you guys have ever examined products of conception or what patients think are products of conception that they bring in at home, I promise you that a blood clot looks very similar to products of conception, so I would hesitate to tell them it's a completed AB um, until the lab confirms it. And then E, like we talked about, is the correct. But we I think we're looking less at the tubes and more in the adnexa. Um, so I, I couldn't. Yeah. Um, so I think when patient, these patients present, I think we're tending to get ultrasounds on most of them to confirm this. Um, so hopefully your ultrasound will be able to pick up that ectopic if that was indeed the case. Um, Dr. Weber, do you want to try question five? Sure. 15 year old boy presents with progressively worsening, growing, and scrotal pain and swelling over the last eight hours. He noticed the bulge in his skirt on the day before when he lifted a heavy object. Physical examination demonstrates an afebrile patient with moderate tenderness and fullness with bowel sounds present in his right hemi bowel sounds in his right hemiscrotum. The testes are not tender or enlarged, which the following is most appropriate next step in management. So he has it sounds like a hernia. Okay, ice pack to the groin, immediate operative reduction, outpatient urology referral, oral hydration, and urinalysis. Um, I guess I mean, probably the next step you could put an ice pack and it would help to kind of reduce. Good. 
A is the right answer. I threw this in here because we spent, last time we did this a month ago, we spent oodles of time talking about hernias, and I just didn't want you guys to forget how much <laughs> we enjoyed that experience together. Um, so yes, oh, sorry, the correct answer here is ice pack to the groin. If you can't reduce it, then it becomes an immediate surgical problem. Um, outpatient urology referral is completely wrong because if this is not going back in, then you've got dead bowel and that's a problem. Oral hydration, mm, probably not going to help. And your urinalysis is probably not going to show you a whole lot since it's a hernia and not an infectious process or some other etiology. Good. Okay. Um, do any of the students want to try one before we start picking on trees? <laughs> do you want to try? Okay. All right, go ahead. Physical examination demonstrates moderate tenderness with mild edema and erythema in the scrotal area. Chromastric reflexes are present bilaterally. A testicular ultrasound is performed and is negative for torsion. Which of the following is the most likely etiology of the patient's symptoms? So, testicular pain for two days and a fever of 101. Um. Were you here for Dr. Burns' lecture last hour? I will tell you that Dr. Burns pointed out an excellent point, and the number he gave was 35, and I would look very closely at that age. Good. Excellent. Good job. So um, I've, there's a lot of points where you're going to see this lecture sort of intersect um, some of what Dr. Burns said, which makes me feel good because Dr. Burns is pretty smart. So, um, <laughs> so yes, the textbooks are going to give you the answer 35, and as Dr. Burns pointed out, it sort of is an arbitrary number that came from apparently a study with only 50 patients who knew. But for your board questions, if they give you a patient over 35, they're trying to tell you it's not an STD, it's E. coli or some other UTI causing bug. If it's under 35, they're trying to point you in the direction of an STD. Okay? So given all of these choices, the correct answer is D. E. coli. The other thing they're trying to tell you, and they stated it about a hundred different ways is cremasteric reflexes are present bilaterally and they give you that a testicular ultrasound is performed and is negative for torsion. They could have given you just that cremasteric reflexes are present and in if that's in a question stem they're telling you it is not torsion is the answer. Okay? How sensitive are testicular ultrasounds for diagnosing epididymitis? I don't know. Because I had a patient the other day symptomatically mm -hmm. I thought was epididymitis but the ultrasound was negative. Uh, but he was so symptomatic, we went ahead and treated him anyway. I probably would have as well. I don't know. I would have to get back to you on the specific numbers. They, sh they should show enlargement of the epididymis. Mm -hmm. I'm not, not going to be 100% sensitive, but I've certainly had a lot of, probably it's epididymitis, I'm ruling out uh, torsion yeah, and yeah. abscess come back with enlarged epididymis consistent with epididymitis. Mm -hmm. Most of them come back that way when the clinical picture points to it. But like Dr. Chen said, clinically if that's it. Yeah. So, I can remember one patient that I do recall who had was classic. I totally thought the ultrasound would come back positive. It came back negative, and I treated him for it anyways. I just gave him really good discharge instructions because, as you know, ultrasound is not good for torsion, right? And so, you know, if your clinical suspicion was high enough pointing me towards the torsion route, a negative ultrasound would not be enough to, to make me stop my workup. Um, but... You know, if you're pointing, if you're thinking more towards epididymitis and I had a really strong suspicion and the ultrasound was negative, I would probably consider treating anyways. But to give you specific numbers, I would have to get back to you on it. Okay. I don't know if any of the other attendings want to chime in on their experiences, but... Okay. Um, so epididymitis. 
It's an ascending infection from the urethra, prostate, or the bladder. Um, here again, the magic age, less than 35 in the question roots is trying to tell you, take you down the STD route. Over 35, they're trying to point you towards E. coli or one of the other UTI-causing bacteria. Um, gradually, gradually as opposed to sudden, which is torsion, gradually increasing dull unilateral scrotal pain radiating to the lower abdomen, fever, erythematous and painful scrotum. Transillumination may demonstrate a reactive hydrocele. I have to admit, I never transilluminate testes, I swear. <laughs> Somebody asked me this question, and I had to stop and pause. Didn't know. Um, the friend sign, that's where you get relief of pain with scrotal elevation. So if you lift, they should have pain relief. Treatment is antibiotic scrotal support, urology follow-up. And the reason we want to make sure we treat it is they can develop an abscess, infarction, infertility, or chronic pain. Okay, Sharice, do you want to try this one? Sure. Okay. Oh, sorry. The daughter of an 82-year-old female brings her mother in for a cheap complaint of a foreign body in her vagina. I'm going to hang on. Stop right there. Has anyone ever taken care? This is like... <laughs> the patient never brings themselves in for this problem. It is always a family member who brings the patient in for this problem. Okay, keep going. The patient has reported the uncomfortable sensation of sitting on a ball and think falling out of her vagina. What is the following? <laughs> is the next best step in her management? A. Consultation with OB-GYN for an immediate hysterectomy. Uh, B. Discharge with flagellum appointment with gyne in two days. C. Manually reduce the mass. And D. <laughs> 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 I and D the mass. And E. None of the above. Um, I'm guessing they're talking about a urine prolapse. <laughs> My guess. Um, <laughs> Do not IND the uterine prolapse. <laughs> I don't want to know what comes out. If you come back and you're like, oh, look, I got possibly like, oh, my God, I don't know what you just hit. It's bowel, something. I don't know. Anyhow. Do not IND it. Good. Yes. Put that sucker back where it belongs, inside. It's not going to stay in there. No, it's probably not going to stay in there. The patient, the, no, the patient doesn't want the surgery. The daughter would like an immediate hysterectomy for her mother. Okay, that's what they're coming in for. I, I hate this complaint. Um, Flagell's not going to do anything. Your job in the emergency department is to manually reduce the prolapse. Okay, and it's more than likely going to slip right back out. Um, and that's expected. It's okay. You can teach the patient that she can manually reduce it as well. Um, do not IND it. Don't cut open the healthy tissue that's coming out. And none of the above. We need to do something for these folks. <clears throat> so, yeah. All bias aside, this is actually pretty common in the ER, and so we need to know how to take care of these folks. Pam. Okay, so that is an excellent question. What is our, my advice regarding pessaries? I have never placed a pessary. I have never attempted such. I have made a phone call to several patients, OBGYNs, to see if I can get them seen to have a pessary placed. And so I would recommend, I would go through the treatment options with the patient. And as far as Pam's question, that would be my only advice in an emergency uh, department setting, is I would just discuss with them that, you know, there are there is something called a pessary that can be used as sort of a a bridge to ultimately surgical correction of the problem. 
Um, but I wouldn't call Gein down to place one in the emergency department or anything like that, okay? So uh, uterine prolapse, it's herniation of the uterus into or beyond the vagina. It's not always the uterus. So it can be the bladder, it can be the rectum, it can be the small bowel, any of these things. That's why I do not want you guys to cut these open, please. They come in grades. Grade one is the cervix is with, still within the vagina. Grade two is that just the cervix um, extends beyond the introitus. And grade three is the entire uterus is outside. And I feel like that's normally the one we see because that's the I'm sitting on a ball feeling that people get. Um, the management for it is digital reduction. You can teach the 82-year-old lady how to do Kegel exercises. Estrogen therapy. Um, a pessary uh, is, you know, like I said, a temporary type of treatment until ultimately the patient can get surgery. Okay? How do you reduce it? Because I had one and I didn't even know like, where to begin. It was like a gourd between her knees. And I was like, what the heck do I do with this thing? I called um, OB because I was like, I don't know how to put this back. It's too crazy. So usually it's not that complicated. You just... You just push the yes. whole sucker back in and it like flips on itself and goes? Yeah. It's huge. I got scared. <laughs> it's all right to be scared. It's all right to be scared. So rectal prolapses, I think, are more scary than uterine prolapses. So when there's something coming out of the rectum, then you can do all sorts of tricks, like sugar water to reduce the edema. You can hold pressure on it to try to reduce a rectal prolapse. But uterine prolapses, usually you just give it a little pressure and it goes back in. Okay? Okay. I went to the cafeteria to get a hamburger and a bunch of packets of sugar. They said, What'd you do with the hamburger? I said, I ate the hamburger. Okay. Moving on. All right. Austin, this question is for you. <laughs> Go ahead, fire away. Maybe differentiated from condylomalata by Yes. C is the right answer here. So Dr. Burns showed some pictures of uh, the differences between condyloma acuminata, which is our um, va vaginal and venereal warts, and condylomalata, which is secondary syphilis. Um, condyloma acuminata is drier and keratinized in appearance. So here's some fun pictures to add to your guys' collection. Um, condyloma acuminata is caused by HPV. And I've... I don't know why I have seen so many cases of this, but um, they can have these small pedunculated papules that can be either single or they can be in big clusters forming these big, huge cauliflower-like masses. And the cases that I've seen is like this person's vaginal area, she's got these huge pedunculated lesions hanging off of it, and it's quite not pleasant. Um, but anyways, the, the whole point is cauliflower-like masses like these, that is condyloma acuminata. The surface is dry and highly keratinized and it's usually asymptomatic unless these things get secondarily infected, okay? Versus 
condyloma lata, which are weeping, wart-like lesions, emit a foul odor. They're more broad-based, they're flatter, and they tend to be moist. So they're, they're in moist areas, like Dr. Burns pointed out, okay? Um, okay, moving on from those fantastic pictures. Okay, um, Randy, do you want to take this one? Which of the following is the most important factor in determining the chance of spontaneous passage of a kidney stone? I'm going to go with the size of the stone. Good. Yeah, this, this is the answer, B, here. So what's the size of the stone that we typically quote? Five. All right, less than five should pass on its own 90% of the time. So kidney stones. Um, males tend to get them more than females with a peak incidence between 20 and 50 years old. Types of stones. Most are calcium oxalate, so they are radiodense. Those are 80%. Struvite stones, which are like the staghorn calculi. They come from uh, urease-producing bacteria like Klebsiella proteus staph. Uric acid can make stones. Cysteine can make stones. Both of these are radiolucent, so they're not going to show up on your KUB to follow them through the ureter. Um, and HIV patients, if they're on um, indinavir, I saw a couple of questions uh, going through the reviews that had um, indinavir as an answer for kidney stones. So just keep that particular drug in mind. Treatment, I think we all have sort of beat this to death. Uh, it's pain control, hydration, and then the argument of the tamsulosin or alpha blockers, calcium channel blockers, whether or not they assist with the stone passing easier. The evidence is not conclusive. I think you guys spent an entire journal club trying to answer this particular question. Yes, maybe? Um, and the jury is still out. Urine alkalinization is really only useful trying to treat uric acid stones, which are only 6%. So most of them are going to be calcium oxalate. I know that in our institution there tends to be a gray area of who needs a urology consult and who doesn't, and it sometimes can be a frustrating conversation for you guys. But in the books, if there is an obstruction, meaning there's hydrouretor or, or hydronephrosis, and there is an infection present, those patients need emergent decompression of the upper collecting system and therefore need a urology consult plus or minus admission. They need to be admitted if there's intractable pain, an infected stone, or renal dysfunction, meaning that the creatinine is bumped, okay? I know that doesn't always tend to be the case here in our institution, but if you're answering a question on an exam, these are the reasons that you would admit a patient. Okay. Okay. Erica, would you like to try this one, please? Sure. A uh, 23-year-old female presents with fever, chills, and right flank pain. She just completed a treatment for pyelonephritis with a two-week course of Cipro. The patient states that these symptoms feel similar. She swears that she took all the antibiotics as directed. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? A, continue Cipro for three days. B, continue Cipro for seven days. C, start trimethoprim, sulfamexazole for three days. D, start metronidazole for three days. E, CT scan of the adjuvant pelvis. Um, well, I think uh, she could either have a resistant infection or an abdominal abscess, so I would probably scan her. Good. Did we have the patient together that had the renal abscess recently? Yeah, her, obviously her story was a little bit different, but ultimately, <laughs> yeah, she had a renal abscess. Um, so yeah, I think this question is trying to, you know, this w woman was, 
<laughs> this woman was appropriately treated with Cipro, plus or minus resistance factors. Um, she swears that she was compliant with her medication, and she has not improved. So giving your Cipro for three or seven more days, I, I think you can rule those two out as, as correct answers. Do you want to start her on Bactrim for three more days, or metronidazole is, I don't know where, wrong choice. Um, but really the only consideration would be this one, and I don't think if Cipro for two weeks didn't cut it, that Bactrim for three more days is going to make a difference. Therefore, leaving you with E as the right answer, because this patient could have a, a stone somewhere, so the bacteria are not clearing from the system because they're sticking to the stone. Um, she could have you know, a, an obstructive stone, or she could have a renal abscess, and a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis is going to tell you that. Contrast, otherwise you can miss a small abscess. So there's enhancement of the ring of the abscess or something with the IV contrast, but you can miss a small one with a non-contrast. Yeah, good argument. We usually do for stones, we tend to do non-contrast studies. We don't want the IV contrast to obscure our stone, but if you're looking for renal abscess or infections such as pyelonephritis or renal abscess, then that IV contrast is going to go into the tissues that are inflamed and they're going to light them up for you. Thank you, Dr. Lindor. Uh, who's next? Shahina, are you next? <coughs> Good. D is the correct answer here as well. Um, so she's 32 years old. She's pregnant. She's in her third trimester. She has a penicillin allergy. Um, so you're taking amoxicillin off the list because of her allergy. I'm not even going to get into the discussion on whether or not Keflex would be on the list if you would give that. That's would need a lot more explaining <laughs> than what this question gives you. Um, it's never appropriate to leave it untreated in a pregnant patient just because it can go on to cause complications in the pregnancy. Bactrim, we don't want to give that one. Uh, they're not safe during third trimester. Ciprofloxacin can cause congenital defects, so those two are not uh, appropriate choices, leaving us with nitrofurantoin, which is macrobid for those folks um, who don't know the uh, generic name, macrobid, and which, is which is appropriate. And it seems to me that our gynecology colleagues use macrobid quite a bit, yeah? Okay. Oh, apparently this slide got, sorry. Got a little out of order. This is just discussing renal abscess. I wanted to bring this part up. Um, I'm probably admitting most of my renal abscesses, but technically the book says if they're clinically stable and abscess is less than three centimeters, you can do a trial of outpatient therapy with oral antibiotics. If they're septic or sick appearing, if the abscess is greater than three centimeters, or if it's associated with a stone, they need to be admitted for IV antibiotics and possible surgical drainage. So I just wanted to bring that up. Sorry, that slide got a little out of order. <clears throat> Anybody have questions on that before I move on? Okay. Pam? <clears throat> the following is true regarding urethritis in men. A, gonococcal infection is almost always symptomatic. B, gonococcal and chlamydia infection rarely coexist. C, gram-negative intracellular diplococci on urine and indicate E. coli infection. D, chlamydia infection is more common in men older 
Good choice. A is the correct answer here. So, um, GC and chlamydia frequently uh, exist together. So, rarely is incorrect here. Gram-negative intracellular dipto diplococci, um, those aren't E. coli. Those are uh, usually gonococcal, uh, a gonococcal infection. Um, chlamydia, again, here's that magic number. Um, older than 35 years old, they're trying to point you in the direction of E. coli or the other bacteria that cause UTIs, not STDs. And first-line therapy is amoxicillin uh, that would... Um, not be the case. It would be more along the lines of fluoroquinolone. Okay? So, wrong antibiotic choice here. Um, okay. Is there anyone else hiding back there in the corner, Pam, or are we back to the beginning? Oh, would you like to try one? Sure. No, I'm Exactly. So Dr. Burns mentioned this as well. So this is a little boy who's had several episodes now of an infection around the glands that's due to yeast, and it can be the only presenting symptom of diabetes. So you should check this kid's sugar. Uh, I just wanted to go through the differences in the terminology. So balanitis is just when the gland's penis is, is infected or inflamed. I, I never know how to say this word correctly. Pastitis is when just the foreskin is infected. And then I think we most commonly diagnose this, which is balanopastitis, which is both. Um, and again, recurrent infections can be the sole presenting symptom of diabetes. Um, and I just put a slide up here on phimosis and paraphimosis just because they were included in the question. Um, and it's something really important that we need to know the difference of because one's a surgical emergency and one is not. Um, so phimosis is an in inability to retract the foreskin behind the glands. So the foreskin tends to be scarred down, sometimes from recurrent infections. Um, it can get so bad that patients have urinary retention or they can't pee, but most often they can still pee, they just can't retract the foreskin. Um, so definitive treatment for it is circumcision, but it doesn't need to be done urgently unless they can't pee. Um, and I did find some studies out there that show that the application of topical steroids, which reduces the inflammation, um, can take care of the problem in 70 to 80%. Um, it makes me a little nervous if there's a secondary infection going on to suddenly throw a bunch of steroids on top. So that would be a discussion I would have before I just started treating patients with this, with your attending when you're presenting the case. But um, phimosis is when the foreskin cannot be retracted versus paraphimosis, which is a retracted foreskin that now cannot be pulled back over the glands. And so the glands get, gets very edematous, and there's a risk for vas vascular compromise to the distal structures. So um, uh, this needs to be reduced immediately. Um, and we'll go through some ways in which you can do that. Okay. So phimosis, again, it's a stricture. The foreskin cannot be retracted versus paraphimosis, which is the foreskin is retracted and the structures distal to it are now edematous and you can't replace the foreskin over them. And this can lead to vascular compromise. Um, 
So the uh, trick to this, um, this is a technique called the thumb reduction where you're basically trying to reduce the foreskin over the swollen glands. What you can do is you can actually wrap an elastic band around the glands of the penis to try to reduce some of that um, edema and then pull the foreskin back over it. The other thing you can do is you can poke some holes in the glands and let some of that edematous fluid run out. I would probably recommend some anesthesia, um, like a penile block if you're planning to poke holes in someone's penis. Um, <laughs> otherwise, your patient probably wouldn't enjoy that experience too much. But this has to be reduced, okay? All right. Any questions on those two? Phimosis, paraphimosis, we understand the differences. So you can okay. just stand there and hold the glands for 10 or 15 mm -hmm. minutes. <laughs> that's one of those instances where I know the male residents need chaperones to do public exams. If you are a female resident, I would probably recommend a chaperone for that procedure. <laughs> Yes. Um, no, the question was, how do you do a penile block? I have never done one. Dr. Langdorf, have you done a penile block? Dr. Chekovarthy? Yeah. Would you mind, would you be able to, I, I mean, I think it's just, it's on the, the, the nerve runs on the dorsum of the penis, and so you just do a nerve block right there um, on the dorsal side of the penis, but beyond that, I haven't done it, so... Actually, pretty simple. You can look at the procedure log, but it's it's very similar to doing a, a regular block. So it's just on the top, and then also on the bottom. Obviously, you got to avoid the vessels and the urethra on the bottom. So, but mainly, uh, it's, it's very easy to do. It sounds scary, but it's easy. Okay. Um, I think the next couple of questions are. Yeah. I have three questions here at the end um, for you guys to, we can do together and you guys can use as your three questions for the lecture. I tried to pick some questions on topics we had discussed already. So I'll read these out and then we can just, uh, someone can shout out an answer. Um, so this is a 45 year old Male presents with progressive scrotal pain for three days, denies any swelling in the area, but reports mild dysuria. Physical exam demonstrates tenderness in the epididymis, normal descended testes, and normal bilateral cremasteric reflexes. Which of the following is most likely cause of these symptoms? A, chlamydia, B, Neisseria, C, E. coli, D, chemical epididymitis, or E, testicular torsion? C. Good. Excellent. Yeah. Sure. All right. Um, okay. Uh, question 15. Uh, which of the following is the most common cause of dysuria? A, bacterial infections. B, viral infections. C, fungal infections. D, parasitic infections. Or E, allergic erythritis. Like from a Foley catheter or something. <clears throat> Not like seasonal allergies. <laughs> <laughs> Did everybody write down their answer for question 15? Okay. Question 16. Um, this one isn't as much fun. How about let's do this one. 
Which of the following is true regarding diagnosis of kidney stones? Uh, A, normal urinalysis essentially rules out the diagnosis. B, KUB radiographs has greater than 90% specificity. C, most kidney stones are radiolucent. D, ultrasound has a greater than 90% sensitivity. Or E, CT scan has roughly 90% sensitivity and specificity. Everybody write down their choice for that one? Okay. All right, that's it. I don't know how to turn this off.